A few weeks ago we remembered and discussed about the emergent church. And there was something else just that came in and I thought it would be interesting just to tell you a little bit more about this teaching which is prevalent today. We spoke about the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ at Easter time. When Jesus Christ died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And one of the emergent church leaders is a man called Brian McLaren. And he said that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement makes God into a strange monster that wants to kill his own son and needs to be restrained. He further says that if the doctrine of hell is true, then Christ's message and the cross are false advertising. He also said that if hell is true, then people can legitimately question God's goodness. He mocks the atonement by saying that if it is, if it is true, it would mean that God can't forgive one person unless he kicks someone else. And here's a couple of excerpts of what he said. We, we have a vision that the real problem is God wants to kill us all. And we've got to somehow solve that problem. Does it make sense for a, for a good being to create creatures who will experience infinite torture, infinite time, infinite? You know, never be numbed in their consciousness. I mean, how would you even create a universe where that sort of thing could happen? It sounds good. It really raises some questions about the goodness of God. You see, these people, once they stray away from the truth, when they stray from the truth, then they start going into complete error. McLaren obviously ignores God's holiness. He is a holy and just God who has given man a holy law. The wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. But, that, but the satisfaction of God's law is not something that man has to do. It is something God has already done in his amazing love for us in sending his son to die. And this, this attack on the substitutionary atonement is very prevalent. As I said, I think it was last week, the, the dean of St. Albans, he has the same theory that... God is a psychopath if he allowed his son to be crucified. And following on from that, there's a very well-read magazine called Christianity Today. and It says in an article just recently, it was in the February edition, that we should forget about being right and instead pursue what is Catholic mysticism. Everywhere we look, evangelicals are turning to Roman Catholic styles of contemplative spirituality, which in most cases were borrowed from pagan sources, we Buddhists and that type of thing. They're encouraging people to go into ritualistic roped prayers, chanting, mindless repetition, meditation, non-thinking, centering prayer, the use of prayer beads, the stations of the cross, and labyrinths. The cover story for the February 
2008 issue of Christianity Today was The Future Lies in the Past. Why Evangelicals are connecting with the early church as they move into the 21st century. It describes the lost secrets of the ancient church that are being rediscovered by Evangelicals. The ancient church in question happens to be Rome. The article observes that many young evangelicals dislike traditional Christianity, which is described as too focused on being right, too much into Bible studies and apologetics materials. Instead, these evangelicals want a renewed encounter with a God that goes beyond doctrinal definitions. This, of course, is a description of mysticism which seeks to experience God beyond the boundaries of Scripture. Christianity Today recommends that evangelicals stop debating and just embody Christianity, towards which end they should embrace symbols and sacraments and dialogue with Catholicism and Orthodoxy. They should break out, of, break out the candles and incense, pray the Lectio Divina, and learn the Catholic ascetic disciplines from practicing monks and nuns. Christianity Today says that this search for historic roots will lead to a deepening ecumenical conversation and a recognition by evangelicals that the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox are fellow Christians with much to teach us. The article ends with these amazing words. This is the road to maturity that more and more evangelicals have set out upon it is reason for hope for the future of gospel Christianity that they are receiving good guidance on this road from wise teachers is reason to believe that Christ is guiding the process and that they are meeting and learning from fellow Christians in the other two great confessions Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox is reason to rejoice in the power of love. And amazing. This is a whole, uh, this chap says, it's a holds barred invitation to Catholic mysticism. And it will not lead to light, but to the same darkness that has characterized Rome throughout its history. It will lead beyond Rome to the paganism from which Rome originally borrowed its practices beyond the mystery of iniquity that has been leavening the church for 2,000 years. So I thought that was sad, but very necessary for us to understand what's happening. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we read from verse 6. We read the first five verses a few weeks ago, now we're on to verse 6. If thy brother... The son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, <coughs> saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto you, or far from thee from the one end of the earth even unto the other. That's sort of saying all the, all the gods in, in, in around. Thou shalt not consent unto him, 
nor hearken unto him, neither shalt thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. Keep the, the whole thing secret. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death. And afterward the hand of the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die. Because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God. Which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Oh, what severe words those are. The first five verses in the chapter, they dealt with false teachers, false prophets, who were seeking to lead the people astray. Those were, in some ways, not immediately obvious to the people living in a family. They were distant. They were preachers and prophets and things who were distant from them. They were not family. Whether one was affected by the teaching really depended on whether you went and listened to those people or not. Outside the immediate family circle. You know, it's very strange what is happening all around us today. You see from the various bits and pieces which I read out Sunday by Sunday, we must separate from the evil doctrines around us. That's what these people had to do. They had to keep away from these false teachers. They had to destroy them, but they also had to keep away from them. You know, I had some correspondence with a friend of mine quite recently. I sent him my comments which we discussed or which we spoke about a few weeks ago from, uh, we had that circular I had received from him from the Christian Institute. We get that literature sent to us here. And I commented on it and I sent out my reasons why I didn't accept what they did and how a Christian should not be involved in something which was political. He didn't agree with my comments. He wrote back to me, very nice letter, but he didn't agree entirely with what I said. He does wonderful work, this chap. We've supported him. He has homes for children in Romania. I actually uh, have known him now for quite, quite a few years working amongst underprivileged children and now he's doing some work out in Thailand and elsewhere and in his magazine which he sends out he sets out very clearly and very challengingly the need for a personal living faith in Jesus as Saviour and Lord so I was thinking about this what I would write back to him and I decided, I went on to his website to see what he says on his website about his beliefs and things. And on the website, I, I, if you're not familiar with the website, there are things called links. And you go onto links and press a button, it gives you all the other people who are associated with him 
in various bits of work. And on that was a thing called Churches Together in Britain. Now this is a totally ecumenical organization. And it was linked to the local Roman Catholic diocese, the Methodist Church. I looked at the Methodist Church site as when I was there and it was recommending a labyrinth. You should set up a labyrinth in the local housing uh, shopping area and things like that. It, it was all just a mixture. Exactly what we were talking about a few minutes ago. We have to speak out. Having said that, I, I looked at another thing and it was a Latin phrase which Pope Boniface the Eighth came up with. He who keeps silent is assumed to consent. Silence gives consent. And that's been a kind of theory and doctrine within the Roman Catholic Church. It's a Latin phrase called qui tacet consentere videtur. He who keeps silent is assumed to give consent. One of the tools of the trade whereby Rome, when, when the Inquisition was on, people didn't speak out against the Church of Rome. They assumed that they uh, were in favour of the Church of Rome. Because if they did speak out, then they were persecuted. So the fact that they didn't speak out was no evidence that they agreed they were more worried about being persecuted. The, the argument was, and Pope said, that people haven't said anything against us, they obviously consent. You know, it was costly to speak out against Rome. It's still costly for many people to speak out about false religions and false teachings. You, 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 you will become known as somebody who disagrees with things rather than one who is seeking to further the truth of the gospel. He who is silent is understood to give consent. But you know, in some ways, that expression agrees with what scripture says. God says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. rebuke. If we don't speak up and say that there is error around, we will be like those people who didn't speak up with the Inquisition. People will assume that we agree with what's going on. It's the same way with this site I looked on. It doesn't matter what you say, whatever your associates say will become obvious that you apparently agree with them. Remember what Spurgeon said. You know, I repeat these quotations every now and again, perhaps a bit like Moses to the Israelites. I need to hear them over and over again to get them into my skull. Here's what Spurgeon said. Complicity with error will take from the best of men the power to enter any successful protest against it. Fellowship with known and vital error 
is participation in sin. Spurgeon goes on to say, As soon as I saw, or thought I saw, that error had become firmly established, I did not deliberate, but quitted the body at once. Since then my counsel has been come out from among them. I have felt that no protest could be equal to that of distinct separation from known evil. That I might not stullify my testimony, I have cut myself clear of those who err from the faith and even from those who associate with them. And again, he says in another quotation, to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. If we are prepared to enter into solemn league and covenant in defense of the crown rights of King Jesus, we cannot give up the crown jewels of his gospel for the sake of larger charity. To tamper with his doctrine would be to drift into compromises which they would not at first propose, but which they seem forced to justify. Yielding to be creatures of circumstances, they allow another to gird them and lead them whither they would not. And when they wake up and find themselves in an undesirable condition, they have not always the reason to break away from it. With deep regret, we abstain from assembling with those we dearly love and heartily respect, since it would involve us in the confederacy with those whom we can have no communion in the Lord. Very strong words. But this poor man, he said, he said of Spurgeon, his wife said that he felt so deeply about the errors in the church that he, it caused him to, to go to an early grave. Not many of us have that, that deep love of the, the truth of Scripture that it affects us like that. We need more Spurgeons. Spurgeons. You know, politicians talk about clear blue water. You hear them talking on television quite often. That we want clear blue water between the two parties. We need Christians who are prepared to have clear blue water between them and the error around. But let's get back to this passage. God here in these verses narrows the circle from the, the prophets, the false prophets and all around. He narrows it right down dramatically and quite drastically. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is like your own soul. Now this is getting very personal oh I don't mind someone impersonal going off the rails and seeking to lead me astray I can go and keep away from that person I don't meet him every day I can avoid having to listen to him or not and so on but someone who I have to sit and have my porridge with my brother who has protected me through all our childhood and stood up for me against all comers or my childhood sweetheart who is now my wife mother of our children and who has been my closest friend as well as a loving wife or my son whom I can see 
traits of me. Maybe my daughter. Who can twist me round her little finger. These are my family. That's who God is talking about here. My nearest and dearest. Those who know my secret thoughts. My fears. Who have entered into the joyous times with me. Shared my problems. In fact, they virtually know all about me. They have laughed with me and cried with me. And what about that schoolboy friend? What great times we'd have over the years. We'd been through so many scrapes and scraps. Good and bad. He stuck by me, never doubted me for one minute. We're like each other's shadows. Like as two peas in a pod, they say. Joined at the hip. That's the kind of people they're talking about here. And what does it say? If any, if any say, if any of those people said, let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou or thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about us. Those people, let's go off and go and try these other gods. Let's go astray. Let's try these errors that we've been speaking about over these weeks. And take careful note. What does God say to the Israelites? Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shalt thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be the first to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You are to expose this man, this woman, this daughter, this wife. Thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God. God looks down and he sees error. He sees his, his son being defamed by people. God still treats that very seriously. He has sent his son to die for us. This was who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ out of the house of bondage. And if people seek to draw these Israelites away, they were to be killed. And all Israel shall hear. Now these passages in scripture are very difficult. And it makes one think We mustn't pass over them and just say, oh, well, that's the way it was. But we have been told that these passages are put there for our learning and as a warning. Therefore, we must seek to learn from God, from these passages, what in this age of grace, how he would have us act. We saw there to show the principles in scripture regarding God acting as a supreme governor. Elsewhere we saw that God as Lord is not answerable to anyone in relation to his actions. 
and that's shown in Isaiah 45 if, look, if we look, I'll read it for you Isaiah 45, because I'm going to read it in the uh, NASB woe to the one who quarrels with his maker and there's a, a, a it gives an image here of a potter an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth will the clay say to the potter what are you doing or the thing you are making will it say you haven't, put the, you haven't done this correctly that's what he's saying woe to him that says to a father what are you begetting or of a woman to what are you giving birth it's a ludicrous situation he's saying here the, the potter being accused by the bit of clay as to how he is making the pot thus says the Lord the Holy One of Israel and his maker ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands it is I who made the earth and created man upon it stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their host God is supreme who are we the work of his hands who gives us the right to query our maker we saw in Acts 17 verse 24 God that made the world and all things therein seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing he giveth life to all and breath and all things you know we looked at this before the, thing, the, the whole situation regarding Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar was a despot Nebuchadnezzar was a supreme ruler but he had to learn he had to realize that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth to it whomsoever he will and set it up above it the basest of men in our passage today God was saying and he was acting in government we must also bear in mind two periods two dispensations separate God is the same God but he acts in different ways in different situations in different dispensations in different times Deuteronomy was written in the time of the law the characteristic of the time of the law was righteousness God's righteous judgment God's government with Israel and the countries connected with Israel was on the strict principle of righteousness we now live in the age of grace since Christ died upon the cross we are in the age of grace which is the characteristic of Christianity when one reads the New Testament we see the difference from the Old Testament God hasn't changed but his in the way he acts towards men has changed during the church age <laughs> we'll go back eventually to the way he acted in the Old Testament 
You know, in the New Testament, in Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus said, You've heard how it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard in verse 43, he says again, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. Then Jesus brings in the new situation in the New Testament. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. A complete difference from what we've been reading in Deuteronomy. Wipe them out. Kill them, destroy them. Love your enemies. In the New Testament. In the Old Testament, if you look at, we've looked at it so often, in in Psalm 2, it says that, this is interesting. Eventually, as I say, it'll go back to the way it was in the Old Testament. And that's why, if you look at Psalm 2, it says, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, and against his anointed saying. And they think God, it says, shall have them in derision. And in verse 9 it says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. When will that take place? When Christ comes and sets up his righteous reign on this earth. A rod of iron. A rod. Something which will hurt. Something which will be a rod of justice. A rod of iron. Iron speaking of the severity that God will treat the people who have rejected him and who have disobeyed him. A rod of iron. And you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, the church age in which we live is not an earthly kingdom for which to fight as some theologians would seek us to believe. We, in this world, we pay our taxes. We recognize the authority of the people around us. We pray for those in authority and we honor them. We pray for the peace of our country. And as scripture teaches, we follow peace with all men and holiness with God. That's important. But we form no part of the government of this world which is under judgment from God following the guide of our Saviour while he was here on earth. Paul says in Ephesians, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. And as Jesus was not of this world, so he said to Pilate, In John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. The two different dispensations are here. The Old Testament dispensation in Deuteronomy 13 Thou shalt destroy them, thou shalt stone them 
Jesus says, this new dispensation of grace has come in. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, or my servants would fight. But then he says something important there. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Note carefully. Now is my kingdom not from thence. Someday, soon any of us thinks, his kingdom will once again be ruled in this world in righteousness and justice. When the church is taken away, and the tribulation and all has taken place, then Christ will come and set up his reign of righteousness and judgment. That's when verses like those in Psalm 2 will take place. But now, he says, but now my kingdom is not of this, uh, is not from thence. Please note, God may act as a sovereign ruler in the world. He is not obliged to give account of his actions to anyone. At any time, he puts up and he takes down. Kingdoms and governments are his and at his disposal. He acts according to his will and his government of human affairs. However, all those who exercise rule are responsible in their overseeing the rule allocated to them by God. We've also seen, as we're talking here, about the age of grace. God may not personally intervene in the affairs of men directly. He may, but he may not. Remember that story, we've said it a few times recently, about the disciples when Jesus was, was uh, refused entry into some village and they rejected him. The disciples wanted to call down fire and brimstone and wipe out those people. But they were rebuked by Jesus. He says, you're in the wrong time. You don't know what period you're in. We are now, each of us today, thankfully in the age of grace. And so going back to the problem here we have with our immediate family. And when they seek to lead us astray. What do we do? What do we do? Turn to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Jesus speaking. These are interesting verses. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not up his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Our Lord knew that the gospel 
the message of the cross of Jesus Christ would divide households as indeed it has in so many cases divides because light and darkness can't dwell together but look at verse 37 that's the one we want to look at he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me the object here is not to lessen the love of children to their parents those who have been the means of bringing them into the world bringing them up in it rearing them giving them love nor do any of the doctrines of scripture go against this principle we should love our parents but the meaning of this passage would appear to show that Christ is to be loved above the nearest and dearest relations relationships and friends that as our saviour and redeemer who gave his life for us he demands our love and devotion more than any human love and emotion can respect go to Luke chapter 2 Luke's gospel chapter 2 we read a few verses there Luke 2 we have so many similar stories these days as is as shown here in Luke chapter 2 parents agonizing about lost children we see them on TV crying and trying to get their children back that have gone disappeared the emotion Luke 2 46 and it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors both hearing them and asking them questions and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers and when they saw him Joseph and Mary when they saw him they were amazed and his mother said unto him son why hast thou thus dealt with us behold thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing and he said unto them oh I'm terribly sorry oh, how is it that ye sought me wist ye not that I must be about my father's business and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them and amazing three days they had been going over looking where was he they found him what was here brought out is that his father's business was to him the ultimate guide in his life here on earth all else had to take second place it was all to do with his heavenly father's will above that of his Mary and Joseph and he as he lived should be our guide and the principle under which we work if we love him any less than that he says and the word really means not worthy of him not fit for him not fit for him 
not fit to be his follower. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not fit for me. Incredible. That's the standard he wants of you and me as we go through life. We must separate ourselves from the teaching and influence of others. Even at the expense of family relationships. Otherwise Jesus says we're not fit to serve him. You know I was thinking of this in relation to joining the armed forces. We sign up for service. Our allegiance is then toward the monarch. Our allegiance to our family now takes second place. The monarch wants us to serve abroad. Our parents may not approve. They may think, oh I don't want him to go to Iraq, I don't want him to go so on. But the monarch's rule is now first in the life of that recruit. Otherwise, he's not fit to be a soldier. And that's the way it is in this age of grace. God, through Jesus Christ, calls us to be soldiers for him. Soldiers of the cross. Our allegiance is to our Lord, our Master. All else is secondary. Otherwise... We're not fit to be soldiers. And just in closing, remember the prayer translated from the Irish you read a few weeks ago. And it sums this up again so well, I think. May all transitory things, O Lord, be worthless in my eyes. And dear to me everything that is thine. And thou, O Lord, above all things I'm going to read that again may all transitory things all these passing things O Lord be worthless in my eyes just as Paul said they treated those things that he thought were great at one stage but dumb may all transitory things O Lord be worthless in my eyes because they are worthless and dear to me everything that is thine and thou O Lord above all things Give me a watchful heart which no sinful curiosity may lead astray, which no unworthy affection may debase. Give me, O Lord, a strong heart which no temptation may overcome.